Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbog, finance editor at The Economist. Today, a stampede of unicorns yearning to roam free, the tech companies lining up to go public despite the pandemic. It's a window of opportunity. People want to get out before the presidential election in November. Are these just one of the signs that silly season has come to Wall Street? How long can the exuberance last? You're seeing very high retail participation and institutional investors seem to be stepping back as well. A lot of things that indicate this rally in the stock market has been very strange. And, later in the show, why economic chaos can help breed business innovation. If you look at the greatest entrepreneurs in the world, many of them didn't seek to be entrepreneurs. They were just people in very difficult situations who responded to harsh environments by invention. First, America's stock markets are flying high. Share prices have risen by more than 40% from their trough in March. And gains for Amazon, Alphabet and Microsoft are helping push the S&P 500 index of big firms ever closer to achieving an all-time high. On Monday, the tech-heavy Nasdaq index broke its own recent record again. And after months of quiet on the IPO front, dozens of tech firms are lining up to go public. It seems like investors are partying like the dot-com bubble of 20 years ago, despite the ongoing pandemic. But can the fun last? Alice Forward is our Wall Street correspondent, based in New York, and Ludwig Ziegler is The Economist's US technology editor in San Francisco. Welcome, both of you. Hello. Hello, Retina. Alice, set the scene for us. Tell us what the past few months have been like for the markets. So in the first few months of the year, you obviously had the market start to grapple with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The S&P 500 fell by almost a third in value. And then towards the end of March, it started to turn around and it has been on this tear higher over the months since and is now basically back where it started at the beginning of 2020. And the two phases that the stock market has gone through, the sharp drop and then the rally since, have both been marked by very strange events. Obviously, the drop was facilitated by the COVID-19 pandemic and markets trying to understand how that would affect earnings and bankruptcies across America and the world. But the second phase has been marked by stranger events in another way. You're seeing a lot of companies rush to either issue securities or issue new shares. You're seeing very high retail participation And institutional investors seem to be stepping back as well. A lot of things that indicate this rally in the stock market has been very strange. Now, Ludwig, you've been looking at the tech aspect of this in particular. Does the IPO scene remind you of the bonanza of the 1990s? 
Yeah, it feels a bit like partying in 99 when I already was here in, in Silicon Valley. And you had lots of companies with strange names going public and they kind of had dodgy financials. And so you have these companies going public. They have huge pops, meaning they are up the first day of trading quite a lot. Recently, we had one company uh, called Duck Creek, which is an online insurance firm, and their stock went up 50%. And before that, you had another company called Big Commerce. It's kind of like an e-commerce platform, a bit like uh, a Shopify going public, and the stock popped 200%. So it feels a bit like uh, the dot-com bubble. It's different, of course, and, and we'll talk about that. But it's a strange feeling. An IPO boom in the midst of a pandemic is a bit surreal, and there's more to come. So Airbnb, there are rumors that this rental company, the big rental company, will go public later this year. There are other companies a bit less well-known, like uh, Palantir and Snowflake software companies, that will go public. So there's more news to come, and it will probably feel even more like a dot-com bubble in the next few weeks and months. And Ludwig, what's causing this flurry of activity? Lots of reasons. I mean, once Alice explained... The markets are in this second phase and everybody is stepping back into the investing and buying shares. But there are other reasons. The pandemic has sped up the move into the digital world, into the digital RAM, into cloud computing. So all the firms that benefit from that move, they're kind of attractive investments. And if they go public, people kind of pile in. That happened, for example, with big commerce. And then, of course, it's a window of opportunity. People want to get out before the presidential election in November. So that kind of multiplies the numbers of companies wanting to list. And then there's just lots of tech companies that are at the stage when they want to go public. All these unicorns, there are more than 200 unicorns, and unicorns are companies that are worth more than $1 billion. They need to go out. They're a few years old, and, and people have been waiting for them to go out, in particular investors. And so they take advantage of that window of opportunity when the markets are seem to be very receptible to tech IPOs. And Alice, is this spike in tech IPOs mirrored in other industries, or is this mostly a tech phenomenon? The trend towards doing an IPO at the moment is mostly concentrated in the tech industry. But one thing you are seeing that's common across all industries is firms taking the opportunity to issue equity at a time when the market seems to be quite frothy. Uh, so, for example, you saw this with Hertz, the rental car company that technically went bankrupt. And then there was this rush of retail interest in the stock and it rose significantly. And Hertz then tried to issue more equity, even though that equity would eventually be worthless. And uh, the regulator actually intervened, but you know, Hertz was attempting to do this. What you're seeing at the same time is this interest in using these special purpose vehicles called SPACs. These are essentially public companies that as a private firm you merge with, and that's a backdoor way to go public. And it's much quicker and can be less expensive. And for a while it was seen as a desperate last resort attempt for firms that weren't worthy enough to do traditional IPOs. But for a couple of reasons, SPACs have become more mainstream. One is that uh, one of Richard Branson's companies IPO'd via SPAC and the hedge fund magnate Bill Ackman has created a SPAC at his hedge fund that's looking to help take firms public. So a couple of big mainstream companies and firms have got involved in SPACs, and that's made them more palatable for all types of firms. And so what I would say is that 
while IPOs might be concentrated in the tech industry, what you're seeing elsewhere is a lot of interest in firms in raising capital, given that their share prices seem to be so frothy. And this dynamic ties together a lot of strange stories that we're seeing at the moment from Tesla and Apple stock splits because their share prices have got so high through to what Hertz is doing through to the tech IPOs. And all types of these strange dynamics that we're seeing seem to be linked together, given this frothiness in markets. Ludwig, what lessons are tech companies in Silicon Valley drawing from this rise in IPOs? I think there's there's several lessons to be drawn here. One, of course, is that markets have a very short memory. I mean, a few months ago, everybody was saying kind of the IPO is dead after the disaster of WeWork, the office rental company that uh, almost went belly up and couldn't go public. And then other IPOs, Uber, Lyft, and these type of listings, they weren't very successful. So at the beginning of the year, people were saying, oh, not much is going to happen this year. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And we almost had no IPOs in April and and May. So it's surprising. And I wonder a bit where they're kind of, it's sustainable and whether we're not going to be back in a more skeptical mode soon. But there have been some successful IPOs now. So what's the reaction been? When you have successful IPOs with big pops, you always have a debate in Silicon Valley about whether this IPO process is broken, whether investment banks strategically kind of underprice these IPOs so their clients can make a lot of money and kind of feed that money back into the investment banks in the form of fees. And I think there's something to that. And the interesting thing this time around is that you have an alternative called SPACs, not necessarily a cheaper way of going public, but a faster way of going public. And the prices covering mechanisms, it doesn't leave as much money on the table, at least theoretically. So those SPACs have been quite successful in terms of like the volume of the number of SPACs has almost rivaled the number of IPOs recently. How does this differ from the highs of the 1990s? I mean, we talked about the dot-com bubble and that it feels a bit like parting like it's 1999. Of course, there's a difference. I mean, we're not talking about companies like Pets.com going public, like basically just names with no business. I mean, many of these companies have a real business. And that's kind of the lesson of the pandemic is it has sped up the move into the cloud, into the digital world. And so those companies that have benefited from the pandemic will go public and will be successful. So Snowflake, it's kind of deep tech. It's a data management platform. I mean, it's been said that software is eating the world and that process has been sped up by the pandemic. And we see that now in the IPO market. Alice, Ludwig mentioned something about sustainability there. And I wondered what you made of that, whether the frothiness of stock prices is sustainable. And part of that, I think, depends on what's driving this exuberance. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. So one of the dynamics that people have pointed to as driving the rally in share prices is the actions taken by the Federal Reserve. So they intervened at the end of March to buy government bonds and since then have extended liquidity facilities to lots of different types of financial market participants. And these actions broadly have underpinned the stock market and the value of many financial markets. And the question is, you know, how much of the rally that's occurred since the end of March is monetary reaction to what the Fed is doing and how much is genuine optimism for the post-pandemic world. And it's impossible to untangle those two factors, but it does suggest that perhaps On the other end of the pandemic, when the Fed starts pulling back some of its intervention in markets, that perhaps you'll see a retracing or a drop back down in security values. And that's possibly one of the reasons why firms are so keen to issue during this window. As Ludwig has pointed out, it's ahead of the election, it's ahead of the end of the pandemic and the end of Fed intervention. So it seems like a reasonably good time for firms to take these 
actions, given the frothiness that appears. But it doesn't necessarily suggest that the move in, in markets is sustainable. And Ludwig, what are your thoughts on sustainability? I mean, to what extent is the disconnect between tech and the broader economy worrying? Yes, I mean, there's definitely a disconnect. As I said, the software continues to eating the world. These companies are doing well. And it's, it's not just kind of uh, the IPOs. It's the big tech companies and their stock prices have gone through the roof. It's interesting, at the beginning of the pandemic, the mood in the Silicon Valley was rather gloomy. I mean, the people were talking about a startup Armageddon, a mass death of startups, and that's kind of gone away. I mean, there have been layoffs, but the mood has changed and things are pointing up because people see, actually, the pandemic is good for tech. So we have the situation that one part of the economy is, is doing relatively well and the rest of the economy is doing not so well. And also in, in terms of jobs, I mean, that shift has massive implications. So if you compare, for instance, Amazon and Walmart, so Amazon has uh, 275,000 employees, Walmart has 1.5 million. So as you move online, that's going to have an impact on jobs. And the question I ask myself is, to what extent is that sustainable? Kind of, uh, yes, the the move into the cloud, into the digital world was inevitable in a way. It's been sped up. But what do we do about it? What do we do about the, the disruptions that's causing to people's lives, to businesses? And uh, it's worrying me. It reminds me a bit of deindustrialization. I mean, the U.S. has uh, exported entire industries in the past decades to, in particular, China. And now we're moving uh, industries, entire industries into the cloud. What does that mean? What do we need to do to smooth out or, or uh, soften the blow of those changes? Ludwig Ziegler, Alice Forward, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachna. Thank you. And you can follow our coverage of How America Inc. is Faring at Economist.com. Subscribe today. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And you can find the link in the show notes. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. And finally, while Wall Street has been busy breaking records, the picture on Main Street makes a stark contrast. Small businesses have borne the brunt of the damage as customers have turned to big retailers to deliver to their doors. To survive, firms have had to think outside the box and rapidly innovate. Initially, we saw a huge downturn in sales, as you would imagine, from the economy shutting down. Jim McKelvey is the co-founder of Square, a financial services company that makes card and mobile payments accessible to even the smallest businesses. He's also deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve and the author of The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business One Crazy Idea at a Time. But then we saw some very interesting behavior where these very small businesses were repositioning themselves, at least the ones that could, to take advantage of the situation. So we saw a lot of restaurants uh, change from dine-in to carry-out or delivery. We saw a lot of merchants moving their stores online, and it was a very resilient sort of behavior. And then Square responded by building tools faster than I've ever seen us produce to help these merchants. So all in all, they were pretty resilient. Did you find that a lot of new customers were coming to you looking to make use of card and mobile payments? One of the things that we offer at Square is a 
range of products, and a lot of these products allow for online commerce. So, yeah, there were a lot of companies that uh, had previously just been brick and mortar, and they were coming to Square to uh, put up stores and do coupons and, you know, manage remotely and just do all those things you want to do electronically these days. And do you get a sense that this is a sort of permanent shift towards online purchases, online sales? It's sort of the future. If you look at the history of calamities, they tend to accelerate the technologies that are already coming. And we saw remote work take a huge, you know, spike up. And we've seen a lot of other things that we would expect five or 10 years from now to be commonplace. Uh, They're becoming commonplace today. You're also the deputy chairman, Jim, of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And of course, the Fed has been pumping lots of money, trillions worth of dollars into the economy. What's your view on how effective this has been and what more needs to be done? Well, I mean, it's been effective to the extent that monetary policy can be. I think the Fed has done an excellent job of responding very quickly and very decisively. And it's not just pumping money into the economy. A lot of it is just instilling confidence that if there is a major problem, as there were in some of the financial markets, that the Fed would step in. And that guarantee of sort of backstopping the economy is almost as important as the money we pump in. And what happens now? I mean, lockdowns are lifting. There's still concerns that the number of cases are still rising. So there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. Do you think it falls to the Fed to continue to stand as a backstop or should it be doing more? Is the job now that of Congress? These are all independent groups. I mean, Congress needs to do some things. The Treasury needs to do some things. The healthcare providers need to do some things. I think the uh, executives in office need to do some things. This is a global pandemic and we're all struggling to do what we can. The Fed has tremendous power and has been a tremendous supporter, but we can't do it alone. That sort of detour on the economy aside, I also wanted to ask you, um, you're a serial entrepreneur, an innovator. What happens to innovations and downturns in your experience? That's a super interesting question because I spent the last three years sort of researching this topic of what makes world-changing innovation. And I noticed a weird pattern, and that is every company that I studied as an example of a company that has innovation that dominates the world also had a bunch of crises. So if you look at the history of uh, banking, you can trace it back. Modern banking basically began in San Francisco, California, with a produce vendor who opened a bank in San Francisco the year before the great San Francisco earthquake. Jack and I launched Square in the middle of the last recession. Southwest Airlines, which I also study, had tremendous problems in their early days. They spent basically three years in court before they could even fly their first plane. So these sort of massive calamities tend to encourage innovation to thrive. And I think the reason for that is that innovation in its true sense is a chaotic, messy process. It's not something you can define. It's not something where the normal rules of business apply. And I think if everything is going well, if the economy is working perfectly, then people are less likely to accept new ideas. But if everything's in chaos and you've just created something new, the world is more open to new ideas when the normal things are no longer working. So I guess what you're saying is that there's more demand out there, there's more openness to to these new ideas. But what about sort of access to credit? That must be harder in downturns for entrepreneurs. Credit does tend to tighten up for everybody during downturns, but it tightens up less for entrepreneurs relative to the rest of the market. So let's start by differentiating entrepreneurship from business. 
So I use an archaic definition of entrepreneurship that's 100 years old. And at that time, entrepreneurs were these crazy people doing things differently. And business people were doing the normal stuff. So in a normal, healthy market where everything's good, the business people are the ones you invest in because why would you change anything? But in times of chaos, people are more willing to take risks. So you've got a situation where the entrepreneurs are relatively advantaged vis-a-vis -vis the business people. Is your thesis that entrepreneurs sort of produce most of the innovation at any point in an economy or can these business people also sort of contribute to it? Oh, so there are basically two types of innovation. There's sort of incremental innovation where you've got a bunch of competitors who are all refining and making small steps on products. And then you have entrepreneurship and radical innovation where new categories are being defined. And they're totally different in the way they are approached because in business, if you're in a group of competitors, typically what you're doing is looking over your shoulder, watching the other competitors and making small improvements, which are very quickly copied by everybody else. But what I discovered in my research was that entrepreneurs take a different approach and they typically try to solve a problem for which there is no known solution. And that solution builds something called an innovation stack where they have to make dozens or more changes. And that stack of innovation creates this totally different market. And then just the rules change. It's a different competitive environment. And so we would like to see both types of innovation. We have a lot of sort of refinement innovation in the world. I think we need more entrepreneurship. Jim McKelvey, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachnashan Bogue in London, where I'm thinking innovatively. This is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.